remain standing for the reading of God's Word as we continue our consideration of 1 Peter. This evening we consider 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Dear friends, let us hear with reverence and awe the Word of our God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Dear friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Please join me in your hearts as we pray for the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Our gracious Lord and heavenly Father, once again, we pray that by your spirit you would help us to gain insight into that which Your Spirit has recorded for us in Holy Scripture. We do thank You, O God, that the Bible is theopneustos, that it is God-breathed, that it comes from You, that it is practical and instructive and sufficient. We pray that by Your Spirit You would help us to behold wondrous things in Your Word this evening, and we pray that Your Word would find a lodging place in our souls. We ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. The title of my sermon this evening is A Living Lord, A Living Hope. And there's a number of key words that you can be listening for that are listed in your uh, sermon outline that I encourage you, especially the children, to listen for this evening. Well, my dear friends, one of the greatest human needs is the need for hope. Without hope, the human spirit is crushed, dashed upon the rock of utter despondency. Without hope, the bright sunshine is hidden behind the dark storm clouds of despair. Without a sense of hope, you can lose all sense of meaning and purpose in your life. If you don't have a sense of hope, you may even lose your will to live. However, beloved, if you have a strong sense of hope, You will be much better equipped to endure great trials and and afflictions, even persecutions, if they should come your way. Throughout history, we read of men and women who have been able to endure great sufferings because they had a strong sense of hope amidst their sufferings. Many a valiant soldier has been willing to lay down his life on the battlefield because of the hope that his death in battle would help to pave the way for a brighter, more peaceful future for his loved ones and for his country. Many brave Christian martyrs, past and present, have been willing to endure unspeakable cruelties at the hands of their persecutors rather than to renounce their faith in Christ because the hope of the resurrection was a living reality in their lives. And they knew that in the end that their Savior would vindicate them. Again, few things can make a person stronger than a powerful sense of hope, and few things can cripple a person more severely than the loss of hope. 
Well, dear ones, in our passage for this Lord's Day evening, the Apostle Peter is writing to a group of Christians who were facing the threat of severe persecution because of their allegiance to Christ. And what these brothers and sisters, these first century brothers and sisters needed was encouragement. And they also needed hope. Because of the afflictions and persecutions that Peter's original readers faced, they would no doubt be tempted to lose their sense of hope. And that is why in the opening doxology of praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Peter reminds his readers that they have been given a new birth, or to use Peter's language, they have been born again to a living hope, as we're told in verse 3. The living hope to which Peter refers, of course, is it's not a false or misleading and certainly not a dead hope, such as is entertained by unbelievers and followers of false religions who have a false hope. Rather, it is a true and certain and living hope. And what is it that makes this hope sure and certain? What is it that makes this hope trustworthy, reliable? What is the objective ground and basis for this new birth into a living hope? Again, the answer is given to us in verse 3. That answer is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is hope because Jesus literally, physically, bodily rose from the dead as He had promised that He would. In other words, it is because of their spiritual and saving union with the resurrected Jesus, their living Lord, that they have a living hope. As their Savior is the living Lord, their hope is a living hope. One that Peter describes as imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, as we're told in verse 4. And what was true for these first century believers facing persecution is true for us. The Holy Spirit breathed out this portion of His Word, not just for these original readers, but this message of a living hope grounded upon and based upon our living Lord. This is a hope that belongs to each and every one of us and belongs to the church of Jesus Christ today in the 21st century as well. And so let us consider this passage of God's Word. And the first thing as we focus on verse 3, notice first of all that we believers have a living hope because we have been born again. We believers have a living hope because we have been born again. Again, notice Peter's opening doxology, which is, uh, again, this was customary in, uh, in epistles especially uh, Christian epistles of this time, such as the apostolic letters, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is referring to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first person of the Holy Trinity. That's God the Father. And notice that Christ is described as our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, showing forth His divinity, His deity, uh, and uh, showing that He too, revealing that He too, uh, is the object of worship and praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. What does it mean, though, to be born again? 
I think it's often helpful to, uh, to understand what something is by first of all understanding what it is not. There are probably many misconceptions out there in the professedly Christian world and the world at large about what it means to be born again. What does it mean to be born again? Well, first of all, it does not mean water baptism. Uh, some folks think that, uh, that water baptism automatically and necessarily uh, causes the one receiving that baptism to be born again, to receive this, uh, this uh, gift that is being spoken of in this passage. But this is not speaking of water baptism, though baptism is indeed a means of grace and it is an outward sign and seal of our new birth. But many have received the outward sign who have not received the inward grace. And some have received the inward grace without receiving the outward sign. And so the new birth is not water baptism. Some might say, well, then is the new birth confirmation, as is the practice in some churches, uh, confirmation? Uh, where the bishop comes and lays his hands on you. And uh, I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I remember as a young person being confirmed and the bishop came and laid his hands on you and, and smeared some oil on your forehead and with the sign of the cross and all of that. Is that what it means to be born again? No, that's not what Peter is speaking of. The New Testament does not speak of any rite of confirmation. I suspect that some folks think that being born again means turning over a new leaf in your life. It means, uh, perhaps to some, a moral resolution to, uh, to reform their lives. And, uh, but, you know, for example, some folks might feel that they're born again if they've uh, had struggles with alcohol abuse. And, and we read stories of, and we know, of, uh, we know that there are folks who have struggled with the bottle, with addiction to the bottle, and have found, uh, have found help with that through such organizations as Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, and they've gotten help and they've, uh, they've cleaned up their lives, they've turned over a new leaf. But friends, is that the new birth? Well, that may be in the lives of some, that may be one of the effects of the new birth is uh, that, that the Holy Spirit helps you to overcome sinful patterns or addictions or what have you. But there are plenty of unbelievers who have cleaned up their lives outwardly, who have outwardly reformed their lives, for which has benefited them and benefited loved ones in their lives. But outward reformation, turning over a new leaf, cleaning up your life, well, that's, those are good things. That's not what the new birth is. So what is this new birth that Peter speaks of? Well, it is in the context of this passage and in the broader context of Scripture, the new birth is the spiritual rebirth or resurrection of a spiritually dead sinner unto newness of life in Jesus Christ. It's much more than, than simply uh, a, a sacrament. It's much more than simply uh, a moral resolution to do better, to try harder. It is a supernatural Reality. It is something that God, as we will see, that God does for us. You see, beloved, in the scriptures, the scriptures indicate that as fallen sinners, as those who are fallen sons and daughters of Adam, in our fallen nature, we are dead to the things of God. We are described in scripture as being dead in our transgressions and sins, as we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And what that means, that doesn't mean that we are unconscious or unaware or physically dead. 
You can be dead in your sins, but very much alive and healthy and vigorous in your physical and natural life. But we are dead in the sense that we are dead to the things of God. In our fallen, unregenerate condition apart from grace, we are oriented away from God. Our spiritual disposition is a disposition of inner hatred for the true and living God, the God revealed in the Bible. You see, apart from God's grace, we hate the true God and we hate the things of God and of His Word. We are hardened in our sinful rebellion. We are insensitive to the demands of God's holy law. And we are unresponsive to the call of the Gospel, the call to repent of sin and believe in Christ as Savior. But through the gift, the divinely given gift of the new birth, God the Holy Spirit raises us from a condition of spiritual death into a condition of spiritual life in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. In the new birth, He implants within our souls a new spiritual disposition, a disposition that is repentant for sin, a disposition which longs for and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ alone as Savior from sin, a disposition that has new desires, desires, a desire for holiness, a desire for the things of the Lord. Some of you may resonate with, with this, but I, I recall when the Lord was merciful to me and, and granted me, and so far, again, and so far as I understand my own conversion and walk with the Lord, I remember as a new believer, a newly born again believer, that I wanted to know the Bible. I wanted to learn the Word. I had this hunger, this desire to grow in my knowledge of who Jesus was, and I wanted to know about what Jesus did for me. And so forth. There was a a hunger and thirst that wasn't there before. Before that time, uh, spiritual things were intellectually interesting to me. But now that the Lord was merciful, now that I came to understand the gospel, now that the Lord had granted me the new birth, now I really wanted to know. There was a hunger to know. Dear friends, through through this spiritual miracle of the new birth, we are made willing and able to respond to the gospel call with true faith and repentance unto life. Well, this passage is instructive because it it shows us who the author of this new birth is. Verse 3, Blessed be who? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I've shared this before, but I have in my library a book written by a famous evangelist. And the book is entitled, How to Be Born Again. How to Be Born Again. And again, well-intended evangelist, uh, well-intended book. But that would be it makes about as much sense from a biblical standpoint the title of that book as as a a book entitled how to be born does that make sense you didn't choose when you were born you didn't choose uh what gender you were going to be you didn't choose your mother or father that was given to you that was something uh cre- that god created uh, likewise with the new birth 
We don't cause ourselves to be born again. We don't contribute to our new birth. The author of the new birth is not God plus our cooperation. The author of the new birth is God and God alone, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is clearly revealed in this passage to be the author of this new birth, this spiritual resurrection. Through Jesus Christ and by the power and agency of the Holy Spirit, God accomplishes this miracle of sovereign grace known as the new birth or regeneration. He does so in the soul of the elect sinner in God's good time. I find it interesting that uh, Dr. I. Howard Marshall, who I'm given to understand, is not at all a Calvinist. I believe he's Arminian and perhaps even Wesleyan in his theological views. Yet in his commentary, uh, he says uh, this about the new birth. Uh, he says that the new birth, the concept of the new birth, quote, emphasizes that the source of life is outside ourselves and lies wholly with God, whose word engenders life. He might as well be a Calvinist to say something like that. So God, God is the source and origin of the new birth. He's the author of the new birth. But this passage also speaks of the source of the new birth. The author is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice again what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his what? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, excuse me, to a living hope. According to his great mercy. The source of our new birth is the Father's great mercy. Now, the, the term grace and the term mercy are closely related to one another. They're closely connected concepts, but they are Distinct in some ways. God's grace, God's grace is, views us as guilty sinners in need of forgiveness. God's grace is His undeserved favor that provides deliverance from the guilt and penalty of sin. So God grace, God's grace views us as guilty sinners in need of forgiveness and it provides us with that forgiveness. On the other hand, God's mercy views us as miserable because of our sins. Grace meets us and meets our need for, for the guilt and penalty of sin to be uh, dealt with. But mercy comes to us in our state of misery, our fallen uh, state of mis- misery. And therefore, it provides us with relief from the misery of sin. By His grace, God favors us in Christ with his undeserved, unmerited love, providing forgiveness of sins, deliverance from the guilt and penalty of sin. But by his mercy, he pities us with a heart of compassion. And friends, it is said to be because of his great mercy that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, by way of application, I want you to notice in verse 3 that the Apostle Peter tells us that God's mercy is great. He doesn't just say, according to His mercy, He has caused us to be born again. He says, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. How great is God's mercy, brothers and sisters? How great 
is God's mercy to us in Christ. Friends, God's mercy toward his people is as great as God himself is great. Beloved in Christ, do you realize that God's mercy toward you is infinite, eternal, inexhaustible, and unchanging? Even as God Himself is infinite, eternal, inexhaustible, and unchanging. Do you realize how deep His heart of compassion beats for you, dear one in Christ? The crucifixion and resurrection of Christ are powerful demonstrations of God's heart of mercy for the redeemed. O believer, rest with confidence in the tender mercies of your heavenly Father. And though you and I may face great trials, deep wounds of affliction, and even the blows of persecution, we can rest assured that our heavenly Father views us with His pity and compassion. And His mercy comes to meet us in that need. And He will deliver us in due time. But what is the basis for this new birth? We've considered the the author of the new birth. We've considered what it means. Let's next consider the objective basis for this new birth. And that objective basis is the historic resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is the second point in your sermon outline. The objective basis for the new birth is the historic resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're told in, again in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, friends, because of what Jesus did by rising from the dead, physically, bodily rising from the dead, we can be spiritually re- resurrected in the new birth. The objective, historical, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the basis and foundation of our regeneration of the new birth. And through His bodily resurrection victory over death, we receive victory over death, both spiritual death and ultimately physical death. Not only does Christ's resurrection guarantee our ultimate physical resurrection unto life on the last day, it also guarantees the spiritual resurrection of all of the elect in this present age, in God's good time. And this is one of the reasons why the resurrection of Jesus is so important and central to our faith and also why it is so central uh, in the writings of the apostles in the New Testament. You read the Acts of the Apostles. You read uh, the various sample samplings that we are given in the book of Acts of apostolic preaching. What are the apostles constantly emphasizing? when they preach the Gospel. They don't emphasize, as so many preachers today, making a decision for Christ or the response to the Gospel, although that that is there, that there is the call to repentance and faith. But what the apostles in their preaching of the Gospel emphasized so much is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and they, the apostles, were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. You see, without the resurrection of Christ... We would have no basis for our Christian faith. But in regard to our passage for this evening, without the resurrection of Christ, we would have no sure, certain, or lasting hope. But because of Jesus' resurrection, we have an eternal hope, firm and sure. 
Dear ones, let us as believers in Christ be vocal and zealous defenders of the truth of Christ's physical bodily resurrection from the dead. Without Christ's resurrection, we would have no hope and neither would anyone else. Let us hold fast this cornerstone of Christian truth for Christ our Lord is risen indeed. So what then is our living hope? This is the final point on your outline this evening. What is our living hope? Our living hope is an imperishable inheritance. An imperishable inheritance. Now, we're going to be coming back to this passage and digging into it more in terms of the specifics. Tonight I'm going to give you more of a general overview here. But let's look at verses 4 and 5 again. He says, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And what have we been born again to? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. If you are in Christ, your inheritance in heaven is being kept for you. And you are being kept by grace for your inheritance kept for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only has God given you a new birth to a living hope, He also preserves you in that hope and He is keeping you for your inheritance in the end. See, friends, because we've been born again, as verse 3 makes it clear, because of our union with the resurrected Jesus, Because of this, we look forward with assured certainty to receiving our eternal inheritance, which Christ has purchased for us at the price of His own precious shed blood. You see, just as Christ rose from the dead never to die again, so the inheritance of salvation that we receive in the new birth is imperishable and secure. The resurrection of Christ is clear testimony to this promise. You know, our Roman Catholic friends believe uh, wrongly. They believe that it is a sin of presumption to have the assurance of salvation or to have a firm and certain assurance of salvation. And certainly, and they would say that, well, you can have a strong hope that you are currently under the umbrella of grace, that you're currently under grace, but you, have, you, you can't be assured that you will have that in the end. But the Apostle Peter here makes it clear that you can be assured. Here, our Catholic friends are contradicting their own supposed first pope. Peter, of course, was not the pope. But he tells us that our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that it is kept in heaven for us, and that we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for this final salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. When, when I've studied uh, church history and read about the martyrs and some of the sufferings that they endured, sometimes I find myself wondering, would I have been faithful to the end if I were in their position? And, you know, I've, I've figured out the answer to that. The answer is, in myself, in my own strength, no. I know my weaknesses. I know my frailties. 
But it is not my persevering through my own steam that keeps me secure. Yes, true believers do persevere, but we persevere in faith because God preserves us in that faith. We are kept by the power of God, God's infinite, almighty power. That power by which He spoke the universe into existence. That power by which the Father raised His Son from the dead. That power that raised us from spiritual death unto newness of life in Christ. That power, likewise, preserves us. If you are in Christ, fear not. The Father will keep you. That's not a call to be lazy or lax or uh, or not to be diligent in your Christian life. You, we must. We are called to be diligent. We are called to, uh, to give diligent use of the means of grace and so forth. But it is calling us not to trust in our diligence, but to trust in the One who preserves us. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, if these things are so, and indeed they are, let me offer you these closing uh, applications very briefly. When you face trials, persecutions, difficulties, and struggles because of your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are tempted to lose hope, ask the Lord to remind you of the living hope that you have. That living hope of an eternal inheritance that is even now being kept for you. Meditate on the glories of heaven. Meditate on the beauty and majesty of your Savior. And let these truths be to you the light at the end of the tunnel that gives you strength to travel through that dark tunnel of afflictions. Because though the tunnel may be dark, though the way may be dark, the Lord's hand is with you and He will pull you through. For you have an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Another application If you have been born again, if you've received the gift and the grace of the new birth, seek by the grace of God to live a life that is consistent with the new birth that you have received. We have been raised up to live in newness of life. And therefore, uh, that is the indicative, if you will. That is our, our, our position in Christ. And therefore, the imperative is to live in newness of life because of what the Lord has done for you in the new birth. We claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, let us seek to act like disciples, His followers, in every area of our lives. And finally, since you have received such abundant and great mercy, do not neglect to show mercy, even to your enemies. Remember that it was not when we were worthy or when, the Lord, when we were the Lord's friends, when we were uh, faithful to Him? No, we were not. We were fallen in Adam. We were, by nature and by choice, sinners, rebels against our Creator, guilty of committing cosmic treason. And the Lord could have justly said, forget it. <laughs> forget it. You're out. But it was when we, while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. God had mercy upon us Not because we deserved His mercy. He had mercy upon us because He is merciful. And it was when we were His enemies 
shaking our fists at Him or being indifferent toward Him, that He had mercy upon us and raised us to newness of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Since God has shown us such great mercy, let us strive by the grace of God to show mercy to others, even to our enemies. We can't do that in our own strength, our own power. It's not natural to us in our fallenness to pray for those who persecute us and even to love our enemies, which doesn't mean liking your enemies. Jesus says to love your enemies, that is to seek their ultimate good, which would be, if they're unbelievers, that would be their repentance and so forth. We can only do this by the grace of God. In closing, let me ask you, dear listener, have you been born again? Has the Holy Spirit raised you from the deadness of your sin to newness of life in Jesus Christ? You say, well, how do I know whether I've been born again? Do you look to yourself or do you look to Jesus for your salvation? Are you repentant for your sin or do you wish to cling to it and love it and embrace it? If you are repentant and believing, then you can be assured that the Spirit is at work in your life. But remember, dear listener, God calls you and invites you to come to Jesus. Jesus died for sinners and rose from the dead so that all who believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. If you find within yourself the desire to believe in Christ, he welcomes you. He, wel- he commands all men everywhere to repent and turn to him. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And you can be assured that you have received the gift of the new birth because it is we believe and repent because we have been born again. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your supernatural grace given to us in union with Christ. And we thank you that in sovereign grace, you have raised us from the deadness of our sins to newness of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to take these truths to heart and live out the implications of these truths in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, friends, let's close our time together by rising and we'll sing together hymn 490, Behold My Servant, 490.